Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. So if you haven't already, take your Bibles and open them to 2 Kings chapter 24 in a Bible study that I've entitled, The Overwhelming Faithfulness of God. The overwhelming faithfulness of God is something that's easily overlooked, something that we can dismiss and take for granted. And one of the ways that God shows himself faithful is through faithful leaders. And I think all of us are very grateful for the faithful leaders that God has put into our lives, like King Josiah. I'm sure that the nation, in the revival that we've been studying, was tremendously grateful for the work of God through this one man, this young leader. You know, he started to be a king as a kid. And as God raised him up to make those hard decisions and to do those things that would bring the glory back to the Father in the midst of the people. God used him as a tool to bring a rampant revival, to revive the people and revive worship and revive so many things. If you weren't with us, that's the sum of our last few Bible studies, looking at some ingredients of revival, looking at how they can be applied in our lives because at various times in our own personal life, at various times in the life of our own church, at various times in the life of, well, you could say the American portion of the church, maybe another country, we need revival. We need to be stirred up. We need to be brought back to a place of urgency and dependence upon the Lord. I think if, everyone, if all of us just took a moment to think of different seasons in our lives, we're like, yeah, the Lord breathed new. We may not use the word revival. It was like, well, the Lord did a new thing or God breathed new life or he gave me fresh vision. All of those things speak of revival where that faith that you have was lit back on fire and you're like, yes, Lord, let's do it. But I have to say, as often as the case, the revival can die off in times of comfort and ease, where you begin to coast along. And when you add to that the death or the removal of a strong leader, evil is always looking for a way to take root in our lives, always looking and knocking and seeing who will answer. And just a little open door, just a little crack can cause great harm. So notice with me now as we pick up in verse 1, it says in chapter 24, In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. And then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, bands of the people of Ammon, he sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken by his servants the prophets. Surely at the commandment of the Lord this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also because of the innocent blood that he had shed for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood which the Lord would not pardon. Verse 5. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim rested with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. 
And the king of Egypt did not come out of his land anymore, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Now King Jehoiakim ruled as a puppet king, a vassal king, for about 11 years. He followed the strong leadership of Josiah with weak leadership. He basically paid his taxes and submitted to the leader of Egypt so that there would be some sort of peace among the people. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He continued to go back in that path away from God. And so in this season, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, began to move rapidly to take over the known world, eventually invading Judah in 605 BC. And you'll recall that when Nebuchadnezzar came and invaded Judah, he took young men with him back to Babylon. And that's where the book of Daniel is, where he took back all of those young wise men and began to educate them in the ways of Babylon, or what we would say today, he began to educate them or even brainwash them in the ways of the world, in the world of that day, even changing their names and their identity and their personality and such. And with Babylon's world domination, The king finally decides to pay tribute or taxes to him and not stand up for what is right. And as a result, the nation suffers more and more. And notice, you'll see this, you might even want to take a concordance out or one of your Bible programs and just put in the word Manasseh. And one thing you will notice over and over again is that the sins of Manasseh lasted for generations and for years. And here he is mentioned again. Why are we talking about Manasseh hundreds of years after he's died? It says in verse 3 that surely the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done. So why after about 50 years now after his death, why is Manasseh being mentioned? And here's why. It's a reminder to us that our lives affect people now and on into the future. And we really can't predict how things will be and how many people will be affected in the future. We just know it happens. I mean, on a very simple, uh, in a very simple way, I had a brother just text me a picture of his podcast and he, it was a picture of a real old graphic that we used to use here because he was studying through our Bible studies here uh, about 10 or 11 years ago. And so something that I did 10 or 11 years ago something that I presented to the congregation that was here at that time and that God had his way with the ministry and the Bible study that night is now fast forward 11 years ago and blessing another congregation and blessing another guy and uh, Lord's using it in a great way. So I'm grateful that as I look at my life with all of my mistakes and all of my failures, the general pattern of my life has been toward the Lord. Not a perfect man, not a man without sinful mistakes, not at all. But it's good to look back at your life and go, man, the trajectory of my life, because of the grace of God, has been toward the Lord. That at least up to this point, nobody's going to be able to write, oh yeah, by by the way, God sent another guy to clean up the mess of Manasseh, and he didn't do it. And he didn't take care of it. And so Manasseh's name's mentioned to warn us and remind us that sin has a rippling effect for a long time. It's not, a, it's not a small thing to choose to sin. It's not a small thing to choose to compromise. Listen to what the Bible says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. It says, You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
visiting iniquity on the fathers, on the children, to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now let me just say that this verse and this section in another place is often used in a false way to teach a false doctrine that you may have heard as this thing of generational curses. That if you look back in the generations of your life and you had a particular act by a grandfather or a great-grandfather or a father, or even today you're looking at your own life and you see great failure, that the enemy has used that failure in the past or even in the present to scare you that now you've created some generational curse. Or sometimes it's used to say, well, you know, the issue that's in your life right now, it's not really your own personal responsibility. It's because of something generationally back. And instead of repenting of your sin and humbling yourself before God, the thing that you should do is break the generational curse. And then they'll always sell you some liquid, some oil, something. It always costs money to break the generational curse. I want you to know, according to the Bible, there is no such thing as a generational curse. That doctrine does not exist in the Bible. It is purely man-made. Now, I have to say that sin and bad habits can be passed down through generations. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? That if you grow up in a home of bad habits, for example, I grew up in a home where both my parents were chain smokers. And I remember as a child, all throughout my life, the layers of smoke in our house. When the different direction of the light, you could see the smoke and everything was brown and dingy in our house because my parents were the type of parents that when they smoked a cigarette, as soon as they got toward the end, they'd take the next cigarette and light it from the old one. That's just what they did. That's how they were raised. That was the house. As a matter of fact, my granny's in heaven right now, but I remember very, very, very vividly my granny. She was a hard woman. She She grew up with a hard life. And I remember visiting her. Not only did all of them smoke when we visited granny, but you know what my granny did? She rolled her own cigarettes. She bought the little can from the store and she had the little machine and she would cut them and lick. I mean, granny was granny, but praise God, she got saved later in life and became one of the sweetest, most wonderful women in the world. And so what happened? My granny smoked. My mom smoked. Guess what I did? I smoked. It was just in the house. It was just something you did. It was horrible and it was hard and it did, I hated it, but I did it because it was the pattern that was laid before me. However, yeah, I, I chose to smoke. It wasn't some generational curse. And when I chose to smoke, I did it of my own free will, my own free volition. Sure, I had the, I had the examples. I'll tell you one thing that I did very uh, horribly that wasn't the pattern laid down to me. When I started drinking, I didn't come from a home that drank. That wasn't in my home at all. There was no alcohol in my house. My parents didn't drink. They didn't party. They didn't believe in that. They didn't even have a testimony of that in their lives. That was something that I chose to do because of the environment that I was in and the people I chose to hang around with. Because the Bible says, evil company corrupts good habits. And whether I'm a follower of God or not, that the Bible is true. And it was true for me. And so we have to understand that parents, listen to me, listen carefully. This is so important. Your kids follow you. They see you the most. You're the one that gives them the greatest example. I know that there's peer pressure, and I know that there's a lot of stuff in the world, but you have been put in their lives to give them the type of example to emulate, the type of example even to stumble over if they choose to do something evil. 
that they could say one day, like I did, yeah, alcohol wrecked my life for a season, but it wasn't because of my parents' example. It was my decision. And even over their constant discipline and pleading with me to stop, it became too late. I went too far. And only the Lord could rescue me. And he did. The good news is that even if bad habits were passed down, even if you failed today, the type of behavior that might have entered into your life, entered into your home, can stop with you tonight by the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't need to be passed on. It is not too late to change. It is not too late to turn around. It's not too late to humble yourself. It's not too late. God is warning the children of Israel not to make the mistakes of their fathers or you'll get the same consequences. And notice in Exodus 20, if you're there or not, you can jot it down when you look at it. It says that the things in the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, what happens when the generation loves him? Things change. Things turn around. You know, love changes everything. And the Bible says, as we've seen, don't you know it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance? Again, jot it down in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. It says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins, but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It's simply not true to say or to teach that there are generational curses and that we are bound by the sins of your father or mother, your grandmother or your grandfather. The Bible clearly teaches that the sins of the parents can be visited upon the children. The children can suffer consequences, but not in the form of a curse. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, it says, the soul who sins shall die. Listen, this is freedom for some of you. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, and the father shall not bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Listen to it again. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. Now here's the thing. Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, was put to death for all our sin. This ends, Deuteronomy, at the cross. That the curse that was upon us of the wages of sin is death was broken by Jesus Christ. That he alone is the one, and I'm thankful that he breaks the cycle of sin, that he did it in my family, he did it in my life, the Lord intervened because I put my faith and my trust in him, and he was able to then to work through my life, and the same could be true for you. You're not stuck in your sin. God is ready to deliver the one that will call out to him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, it says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. God can and will stop that chain of sin as you turn to him. And so Manasseh, he's mentioned again. And notice that these things uh, came because of, in verse 3, the sins of 
Manasseh. God was using Manasseh, even though Manasseh was horrible and made many decisions, God still used him to fulfill his purposes, his prophetic purposes, in this case of judgment. Because we're reminded, turn over to Romans chapter 8, would you? We're reminded in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, that nothing is wasted by God. We see that in a real practical way in the, in the book of 2 Kings, but we know that God is the great promise giver. And when he promises, when he predicts, when he prophesies, it will come to pass for judgment and for good. And here in Judah's history, it's for judgment. Yet even in judgment, God is going to use Daniel, even in judgment, even in the invasion in 605 by Nebuchadnezzar, God is still going to use Daniel and his friends and that whole scenario through his life to bring great glory and honor to him. So nothing's wasted by God. Even in the disaster of the way it looks today and the uncertainty of what the future may hold, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and I want you to see it in your own scriptures, so you might want to mark it, you might want to circle it, and it's good for us to be reminded that even though there's a Manasseh, there's a Romans 8, 28 even for Manasseh, even for the little Manassehs in our lives. And so we know, it says in verse 28, we know that some of, some of the things in your life work together. Is that what your Bible says? I didn't hear any groaning. Bianca laughed a little, but no groaning. And we know that, say it with me, all things. You could even personalize that and say all things in my life. We know that all things in my life work together for good to those who love God. If you love God tonight, say amen. amen. Turn to someone and say, I love God. Go ahead, tell them. I love God. Turn to no one and say it. I love God. Say, so tell God, I love you, Lord. You're so good to me. You're so faithful. And so notice, if you love God, all things are working together for the good, for those that are called according to his purpose. And this is meant to be a comfort to you. Romans 8, 20, it's in the Bible to, to encourage you, to remind you. It's like a soft pillow to a weary head. That I don't know what's going on. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds my future. I know that he's going to work this together. I don't know how it's all going to mix together. But yes, God's at work in this. Yes, God is using this somehow. Yes, God cares about me. Yes, God hasn't forgotten me. He hasn't forgotten about me. That somehow this ingredient is going to be mixed together in the, you know, the cake of my life. And it's going to come out good. It's really nasty right now. But God's going to work it out to be something really good. It's going to glorify him. It's going to cause me to grow and become more like Jesus in his presence. I know it's not always comforting to hear this verse, especially to anyone struggling right now or anyone under the weight of great pain or sorrow or grief. It's not an easy verse to receive. It, it almost sounds like a platitude. It almost sounds like a cliche. It almost sounds like if someone shares it with you, like, well, you don't really understand what I'm going through. You don't really know what I've gone through. You don't know my sleepless nights. You don't know my difficulties. And, and let me just remind you that if someone's sharing Romans 8.28 with you, they don't mean to hurt you. They're not intending to hurt you. Even if they deliver it wrong or maybe have bad timing, maybe they don't understand. It's precise. I, would say, I would even put it this way. It's because we don't understand exactly what you're going through. 
and we're not walking in your shoes. And we aren't in your home or in your sleepless nights. That we grasp at anything in the scriptures that might give you hope in your current situation. Because we're not there. Maybe we walked a familiar path, but not your path. Maybe we experienced something similar, but not what you're experiencing. And so we're grasping at anything that might give you hope. That might remind you of God being on the throne. And if we ever have used this verse, and I'll speak for the body of Christ. If we ever have used this verse in a way that hurt or harm you, please forgive us. It certainly wasn't meant to hurt you. It was meant to remind you, maybe plant a seed in you. I can say many people shares this verse with me along the way in the past few years, and it wasn't always well received in my heart. Oh, outwardly, I'd say thank you because I was appreciative that somebody cared enough to share a scripture, text it to me, email it to me. I do appreciate that. But I know my feelings and my emotions so overwhelm me in the moment that it didn't immediately minister to me until I was in a place of reception and began to see, oh, yeah, the Lord is good. He is faithful. And I go down to another difficult, oh, the Lord is up and down, up and down, as anyone will tell you that live on emotion. Because emotions are so real, aren't they? There's nothing you could, I could ever do to talk you out of what you're feeling. You're feeling what you're feeling. That's why when you're sitting down to speak with someone, the worst thing you can do is try to talk them out of their feelings. How do you do that? How, how can you talk, you know, I'm just feeling like this. and they go, Oh, no, Christians walk by faith, not by sight. It's true. But what's helpful in a, in a time of sitting down with someone with the Bible open is just acknowledge their feelings and say, wow, man, it must be really hard to feel that way. Tell me what it's like. Invite yourself into their lives. If they let you in, great. If they don't, that's okay. And then the Holy Spirit will begin to minister to you because feelings are real. But listen, they don't always tell you the truth. That's why we don't walk by feelings. We walk by faith. And sight, feelings is a lot of sight. It keeps us, the idea of sight is not just what we see, but it's the distinction between the eternal and the temporary. And if all we measure life is by the temporary, we will be hopeless. There's no hope in the here and now. There's no hope in the circumstances and the situations. Our only hope is in the delivering power of Jesus Christ. His faithfulness that put the capstone of eternity on the difficulties of our present condition. He would even say it, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would, in, would, would say to us that my present difficulties, they don't even compare to the glory that's going to be revealed. It's not even close to what I'm going to experience. You see, when you, when you and I choose to factor out eternity and forget about heaven and forget about the high and holy and risen Jesus Christ and all we do is are oppressed by the difficulties of this world and the damages of this world and our own mistakes and our own issues and things that are outside of our control if that's all we think about yeah it's just boom 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 and yet God he comes to deliver us that not even a Manasseh can stop the will of God. Not even a Manasseh repeated over and over again 50 years later is not going to thwart the will of God. Why? Because even now more so for us in the new covenant, the covenant of God's finished work in Jesus Christ, not dependent on our works, not dependent on our good behavior, not dependent upon the effort and energy. You know, maybe you did okay today and now that merit, or you didn't do so okay, so you think, oh no, God doesn't love me. He loves you in spite of it all. 
And then how much more does he love you and me in Christ Jesus? Well, Paul wrote that. He says, man, it's deeper than you can think, higher than you can think, wider than you can think. As far as you can think about the depth and the width and the height of God's love, he loves you more. And he says in Psalm, that's going to be the theme of the junior high retreat this weekend. He talks about, and the, the psalmist talks about, where can I go from your presence? If I go down to the bottom, you're there. If I rise up high into the heights, you are there. How much more in Christ Jesus? Not everything goes our way. It's true. Not everything happens according to plan. You know, a few years ago, the big popular thing in the business world was to develop your five and ten year plans and you know what do you look at every interview I ever went through for some big corporate job was where do you see yourself in five years you could never really answer that question honestly because my answer would be I see myself sitting in your chair doing your job <laughs> so you couldn't even like I, I see it sooner than five years bro and, and you, you know, that everyone would have you, well, go ahead and plan it out and write it out. And, and even it, it spilled into the Christian world and write down your plans and you can create your future and you can create your reality. I don't know if I have to convince everyone by now, but there are many of us that had five, 10 year plans. Didn't happen that way. I mean, it's okay to plan. It's okay to look ahead. As a matter of fact, it's required many times. But James warns us to not be presumptive when we're planning. It's almost like James is telling us, when you're planning, you know, don't you say tomorrow or today or tomorrow. Don't do that. It's almost like he's saying, if you are going to write plans, write them down in pencil. And let the Lord be the guide, leading you and guiding you by his spirit. Not everything happens the way we know. We understand the world is full of sorrows and difficulties. Some experience them more than others around the world. But we're reminded today, even as we think of Manasseh, that all things are working together for the good. Or in Roman, you're in Romans 8, look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Because the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. And we're reminded of God's promises to us and you come back now to 2 Kings. Um, there's difficulty, but there's God's faithfulness. The end of the story is written by God. And so even so, God used this judgment and the evil of Manasseh to bring his will. Notice in verse 8, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. And at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem and the city and besieged it. Verse 11. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. Then Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princes, and his officers went out to the king of Babylon and in the eighth year of his reign took him prisoner. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. And he carried into captivity all of Jerusalem, all the captains, 
all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried Jehoiachin captive to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officers, and the mighty of the land he carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And all the valiant men, 7,000, craftsmen, smiths, 1,000, all who were strong and fit for war, these the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. Then the king of Babylon made Mataniah, uh, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. So the next king follows the same pattern of evil. He too faces the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar, but this time he loses all the valuables in the house of the Lord. In addition, another 10,000 people were taken captive with him, including the king. Let me read to you a summary of what's happening during this time, putting together the different passages in Jeremiah and Kings. Jehoiachin was a prisoner in Babylon for 37 years and then was released by Nebuchadnezzar's son and heir, evil Merodach. The false prophet Hananiah had predicted that Jehoiachin would set free to return to Judah, but the king remained in exile, though treated with kindness after his pardon. Whenever the king of Babylon displayed his special prisoners on royal occasions, he put Jehoiachin's throne above the thrones of all the other captive kings. And just as Jeremiah had predicted, Jeremiah prophesying during this time, none of Jehoiachin's children sat on David's throne because Josiah's third son, Mataniah, was appointed king to replace Jehoiachin. This was from Warren Wiersbe's commentary. And you can summarize it, that there was a lot going on behind the scenes, all fulfilling the promise of God. And what I, why I share that, why I wanted to read that paragraph to you is just, you never know how things are going to work out. You just don't know. We don't see the whole picture. The Bible says we all see in a glass dimly, but then face to face. Even on the radio this afternoon, I could hear in a sister's voice the troubling story she was sharing and I could hear one of the roots of what was troubling her. It was something that I can relate to very personally. She was striving to understand why. And every new issue came up, she was why. And every new difficulty that came up is why. And she explained that to us in, on the radio. This, she explained it like, you know, I just don't understand. I can't tell you how many times I've used that phrase in my own life, in my own vocabulary. I just don't understand. And here's the problem. The problem is, is when you're asking the why question, you usually, when you don't find the answer in the Bible, which often you won't, you answer it yourself. And can I just share a secret with you? Your answer is wrong because you don't know. If God didn't reveal it to you, then what makes you think, what makes me think I know? But I do from time to time. I lean on my own understanding. A better question to ask in great crisis times is not why, but who? Who's my God? Who saved me? Who's been faithful to me in the past? As Pastor Chuck Smith has taught us, you know, when you face something that's overwhelming and you face something that's beyond your understanding and when you face something that, you, that is so painful, so difficult, that you can't explain, that you don't know what's going on, you don't understand the whole thing, Pastor Chuck taught us when we come to things when we don't understand, he taught us fall back on the things that you do understand as you're waiting fall back on the thing. What do we understand for sure? I'll tell you what. I understand that God loves me. I understand his supernatural, miraculous, mind-blowing power in my life personally, let alone the testimony that's spread throughout our church, spread throughout our community, spread throughout the history of the Christian church around the world for thousands of years. I know that. 
You can't talk me out of the power of God. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've experienced it. I I know you have too. And here's how. You went from darkness into light. You were blind, but now you see. You you were sold out as a slave to sin, but now you're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. I know that. I know that God's faithful. Can't talk me out of that one. I know that God answers prayer. And you can begin to think, even in the most simple terms in your relationship with God, as you're overwhelmed with the waves of difficulty, when you come to a place of lacking understanding, which we all do, Pastor Chuck is wise. Fall back on the things that you do. He's really just rephrasing what the Bible says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he'll direct your path. You know what happens when you trust him with all your heart, acknowledge him in all your ways? You know what else you get to enjoy? You get to enjoy by faith that God works all things together for the good, for those that love him. So even in Jehoiachin's reign, God uses it. It's a beautiful picture as we'll see in a future study of the faithfulness of God in delivering us personally from our bondage. Notice verse 18 now. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mom's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He also did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah, that he finally cast them out from his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So he reigns. He reigns in evil reign, pays the price for it. He too is a puppet vassal ruler. To even taking an oath, you learn in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, he took a name and an oath in the name of the Lord that he would be faithful to the king instead of to the Lord. And he eventually then changes his mind. He rebels and brings the final invasion of Nebuchadnezzar, completely destroying Judah. So if you're taking notes, just so you know of the invasions of Judah, number one is in 605 B.C., Uh, This was the invasion that took away uh, Daniel and his friends. The second invasion by Nebuchadnezzar is in 597 BC. That's when 10,000 were taken captive. And this final one, 588 under Zedekiah, uh, 588 BC is when it's completely destroyed. And so politically, if you look at this from a political standpoint, because remember, that's the essence of some of the rulership. Politically, it seemed right for Zedekiah to revolt against Babylon. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar would have none of it. And his response was marching his army into Jerusalem. And yet, when the Egyptian army moved to help King Zedekiah, the Babylonians withdrew. And they, didn't want, they temporarily then turned away from invading Jerusalem to take on Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar was wise. He knew he, didn't, he couldn't fight two wars, so he went after one at a time. And this is where the Bible comes together. God, you can jot it down, but God sent Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. God sent Jeremiah to warn Zedekiah that Nebuchadnezzar would return in Jeremiah 37. But Zedekiah's faith was in Egypt and not in the Lord. And Zedekiah even called on an international conference to bring all of these Edom, Moab, Ammon, all these nations together, Jeremiah 27, hoping that they would work together to defeat Babylon. And yet Nebuchadnezzar wiped out Egypt and then went right down and wiped out Jerusalem. Listen, looking to man for help is empty and fruitless. 
I don't know that everyone here today can share that testimony because you haven't learned it yet. But looking to man is empty. Man is not your hope. Men and women in the church are not your hope. Pastors and priests are not your hope. Political leaders are not your hope. Man-made systems are not your hope. When will we learn, according to the psalmist in Psalm 40, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders you have done and the things that you've planned for us no one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them all, there'd be too many to declare. This is a solid theme throughout the Bible and so needed in our lives. When will we learn man is no real help? Now, I'm not talking about how God uses the body of believers to encourage and, and strengthen each other. Uh, we need that. God created us to be relational. Um, the church is a relational organism on the earth today that God himself created and continues to grow himself. So I'm not speaking about how we, we aren't able to help one another like with an encouraging word or a scripture as we can pray for one another, serve one another. That's not what I mean. What I'm referring to here is similar to what Zedekiah does. When given the choice, he trusts the leadership of Egypt and he doesn't trust the Lord. And he trusts his own little schemes and his own little devices, putting his trust in man instead of God. That's why the psalmist would say in another place in Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Now I have to say, you know, sometimes when you kind of come to the Bible with a little attitude and you go, oh, I've never trusted in a chariot. I don't trust, I don't even like horses. I don't trust in horses. But that's when you got to understand the biblical context of a verse. For chariots and horses, it spoke of power and authority. It even spoke of political strength. It would be the equivalent of us saying today, I I trust in a tank to protect me. I I trust in the authority of somebody that is armed and protected to, 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 to fight my battles for me instead of trusting the Lord. Disappointment and consequences await you and await me when we place our trust in man and in man's power and our own limited resources. When we are weak, we need to trust him, not ourselves. And I'm reminded when Moses, as God called him to service, early on in his life, he sensed that God's hand was upon him and he wanted to, he wanted to be used. He was so excited, he stepped out ahead of the Lord and he took things into his own hands Those of you Bible students, you remember in Moses' life, he saw that fight between the Egyptian and the Hebrew. And at that point, he felt like God was really going to use him in a mighty way. Instead of consulting God about the fight, he goes and he kills the Egyptian. And the Bible speaks of him looking around and he sees no one. But the Bible doesn't speak of him looking up because God saw that. And it wasn't God's will for him to break up that fight. It wasn't God's will for him to step in. He acted prematurely in his own power, in his own strength, in his own flesh. And he spent the next 40 years of his life learning to depend upon God. And some would look at his story and say, and it's a true story of Moses, some would look at his story in 40 years and go, what a waste of 40 years. I'm certain that Moses in his humanity probably felt that as well. But he didn't understand there was another 40 years coming. That God was going to be abundantly gracious with him. That the prescribed time for him in the, really, he got a, he got a degree. Uh, he got a seminary degree. It was the backside of the desert degree. And he spent a lot of alone time with the Lord. And he began to grow in God's favor and wisdom. And he learned faithfulness. 
and he learned all sorts of things. But what he learned was he was not strong in his flesh, he was not strong in his wisdom, and he was not strong in his own strength. And it's interesting that how, the Mo- how Moses, in the power of his own flesh, wasn't even capable of burying one Egyptian. But God wanted to show him that in his strength, he could bury the whole army of Egyptians miraculously in the Red Sea. There is that sense where we need to learn the valuable lesson that apart from God and apart from his power, we are, we are nothing. We are weak on our own. As we're reminded in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, it's not by might and it's nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's the only way out, gang. It's not by my might, not by my schemes. It's by my surrender and a surrendered life to the Lord. As we look at the work through our lives, we see God's faithfulness. And many times in God's faithfulness, our failures are magnified. If it wasn't for God's failure, uh, fa- faithfulness, we may not even see our own failures. But God will even use our failures to rise us above the circumstance. Why? So that we can see our own weakness and declare his glory and strength. It's so against the grain of how we live our lives, how we've been taught, how we've been raised culturally. Because culturally, weakness is not valued. Do you know at the time of the New Testament, the Greeks, the Romans did not value weakness. It wasn't something that was, that was elevated. It wasn't something that was embraced. No, instead the demigods were created and the false idols were created to give people hope and encouragement that there was someone stronger than them and that they too could look to the strength of the gods, little g. That's why by the time Paul comes to Athens, you remember in Acts chapter 17, his spirit, it says, was provoked inside of him. Why? Because he surveys the whole city and it was just filled with little gods. It was filled with idolatry. It was filled with false worship. And Paul saw that as a bridge to build into their lives. He says, I see that you guys are a very religious people. Now, some of you, if you walked into a place and saw all kinds of idolatry, you just start, man, what kind of idolatrous place is here? I will not eat here. Get rid of the Buddha. I will not eat here. Get rid of, I will not. Like, like, man, just like, hey, I see you're pretty religious. What do you believe in? I have some Kung Pao chicken, you know? Or whatever restaurant it might be. Building bridges is very important. Talking to the human being is more important than making your point. God will make your point. Actually, God will make his point through your life as you build bridges and bring someone to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's actually not about the, the little Buddha statue or, you know, as we were in um, Thailand and Bangkok, I mean, it was everywhere. Uh, there are people starving in the streets, but there's food in front of idols all over. And incense and for a, very, for a nation that, that has many people struggling, they are able to find the resources to worship false gods. Then we went to the palace and, and the insanity of, it was just mind-blowing. And I understand a little bit of what it was like for Paul to be provoked in his spirit, watching everybody bow down. It almost makes you sick to your stomach. And yet God loves them. Sent his son Jesus to die for them. The blind he wants to give sight He wants to save. He came to seek and to save the lost. And so whether it's Moses or Ed or you, at some point you're going to learn your own insufficiency. You're going to learn on an ongoing process how much you trust in yourself. You would think by now, some of you have been walking with the Lord for 30 years, you would think by now, I will no longer trust in myself. 
wrong. So the closer you get to the glory of God, the more brightness is shine on your life. And as you see that shine in your life, you go, oh my goodness, what is this? My flesh is ever before me. And what do we do? We make no provision for the flesh. We just cut it off and humble ourselves before a mighty God to trust him and worship him. So yeah, there's Manasseh's. Yeah, there's Jehoiachins, Jehoiakim's. There's Zedekiah's. There's Nebuchadnezzar's in life. And it feels like at times we're just, we're just all having to deal with the reality of people in power and people. Not so. God is on the throne. Nothing passes by him. And for those of you with faith in Jesus Christ, we know that all things work together for good. Those that love him. Those that are called according to his purpose. So just call upon him tonight. Just ask him to give you understanding of his love and grace. Not of the situation. Just ask him to meet you where you are. Minister to your broken heart. Minister to the concerns and fears and anxieties that trip you up. That toss you to and fro. Okay, so maybe it was your act, your decision. Lay it before the Lord. Offer up yourself as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. Believe God when he says he forgives you. Receive that forgiveness. Believe God when he tells you that there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ. Do you know the safest place on the planet earth for any person is to be in Christ? Safest place. And some you're just going to run right back there today. So Father, thank you for the truth of your word tonight. The overwhelming faithfulness that you show us. May you have your way in our lives to receive glory and honor and praise. May you continue to stir us, to encourage us, to reprove us, correct us, test us, that we might walk forward by faith in you. Give us the strength to resist temptation, to take the way of escape that's always before us. And even when we don't, Send someone, a messenger, to remind us of your faithfulness, to speak the truth into our lives. And may you be glorified, no matter what we're going through, what we're facing. No matter what new revelation has come or what new information might have happened, what difficulty was on the phone this morning or some issue. And, you know, like that sister today on the radio, someday she doesn't even want to get out of bed. Would you be the lifter of her head, Lord? Your word says you're the lifter of our heads. Even when we don't want to get out of bed, you're there. So minister your comforting grace to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877 304 7223 or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.